0: We're in a series called All of Life. I don't know if you noticed it, but out on the, you probably have, uh, on the commons building, there's these banners we hang there. And right on this side, there's a, a large one, and it says, All of Life is All for Jesus. And that, that sounds, and supposedly when you see it on a banner, it looks like a slogan, right? That's a, just a slogan. But it's way more of guardrails for us to determine what we do and what we don't do than anything else. It is a conviction. It is a principle to live by. We, we, it's all the songs you sang. Everything had a theme. Everything had a hero, and it was all Jesus. Jesus is the point of our faith and our and our living. And so um, every once in a while in our preaching calendar, I mean, we're getting ready to, after Easter, start the, uh, a study in the book of Titus. Uh, but when we're in between books, we kind of talk about allowing congregations to do things congregationally specific. And so for a couple of years now, we've done this all of life series, and we've tried to tackle things that are common to our everyday living. And there's one major question we ask and why we think it's beneficial to go through that experience. And that is this, that um, looking at normal things, things that we all deal with, what would this area of my life look like if and when Jesus is king? Over that area, so we've talked in the past about marriage and parenting and work and and things like that and uh, how you manage your money. Last week, uh, Tom kicked off our series looking at what suffering would look like if Jesus was the King, and uh, trying to be real practical. And so, um, when I laid out this series, I picked—and this is going to seem really weird—I picked the subject of politics. Um, don't throw rocks yet. Um, and if you know me, you know why that's weird, me picking it, Be- because I'm, I am i kind of lean away from the table on some of that stuff. I mean, I vote, I consider myself a, a good citizen, but I don't get ramped up about it um, much. Um, and there are people way more informed. I have a, a friend who is deeply rooted in it, and we talk all the time, and we're kind of like two ships passing in the night when it comes to the issue of politics, but I felt like... I felt like God had put something on my heart to say to the church, and I want to take it. So I picked it and forced myself to have to look at a subject matter from a position that I think would be helpful generally to all that would would come. I know um, as soon as uh, you mention the word politics in a church, everyone perks up, and for different reasons. There's a group of you in here who are passionate, like really passionate about the subject matter. You are well-informed, you watch the debates, you read articles, you know policies, you are passionate and potentially opinionated, and you're here, and I'm gl- glad you're here. There, there's another group of people that are here, and I, I, I'm painting broad, broad brush, So, but you don't care, um, you're cynical at this point, you're apathetic, and pretty much indifferent to this whole thing because you, you've kind of washed your hands of anything like this election. But whoever you are and however you feel, I say politics and you perk up possibly because you think, finally, they're going to talk about issues, and the church needs to talk about issues, and, and then there's another group of people that are ready to leave the church if I bring up an issue, because don't, don't there, church does not belong to that, and uh, so I didn't make it a mission, but I think what I'm going to do is disappoint everybody today. <laughs> it's not like on my agenda list, but I'm, I'm certain if you're one of those extremes, I'm not going to measure up. Um, so I thought I would tell you what I'm not going to do. As opposed to just letting the, the topic of politics uh, interest you, I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to do. I, I am not going to talk about policy. I am not going to talk about people or candidates. I am not going to talk about left or right winged issues. I am not going to talk about your hobby horse, whatever it may be. I'm going to talk about your king. And I have to define that because in a room like this, there's always a handful of people, maybe more than a handful of people, who are in church because of relationship. Husband, wife, child, friend, they're here. You're investigating. You're considering what this whole church thing is. But all that confession that we sang about his sovereignty and his control and who he is as our God, not judging you. I'm just saying your own assessment of your heart says, I'm not there. I mean, I'm sort of okay with him being the historical figure as he portrays himself to be, I went and saw the movie Risen, but I'm not buying this whole God incarnate thing. I'm not buying him dying in my place and me receiving salvation that transforms my life. I'm not there yet, and I'm glad you're here, and we're not putting any judgment on you. But this message today is for the church. You're welcome to listen in. You're welcome to see how weird we are. I'm glad you're here. But I'm talking to you who confess, because there's something we need to talk about. And uh, I suppose I need to apologize for the title politics for this message because it's sort of a bait and switch, to be honest with you. Um, But it got you here, so I'm glad about that. I think the church has far bigger issues than what candidate gets elected or what policies come to fruition. I think the church has a problem with acting like this is their home. And more than anything else... That reality is affecting every perspective we have, even including who we vote for, how we vote, how we feel about that. So I read, a, I read a CNN article, and I know this is not fair because articles don't represent a whole, but either way, I thought it was interesting. They were trying to define Christians' feelings about the election. I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. And so the article just picked a couple words and then went on to tell stories. But the couple words they used to describe Christians was angry and fearful. And part of the article went on to kind of imply that that's a good thing. Because angry and fearful people vote. That's what they do. They're terrified and they're absolutely convinced. Now it's time to do something. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I thought that was interesting, CNN saying something like that. I don't know if we are. I I saw also another article by NPR, National Public Radio, that that described the climate of this election, not just for Christians but for people, people now. And these are some of the phrases, words, thoughts that they use to describe how people feel right now. One is a loss of control. The other is anxiety, a sadness, and a hatred. That's our world. I don't know if that's fair, but um, that's what they said. I found this blogger, uh, she is nobody to us, she wouldn't be really anything, everyone has a computer can blog, so. but I, I sort of enjoyed what she said about how she felt because it's sort of, what we have to deal with is, is that reality, our feelings about this climate and our world, and this is what she said, see if it's interesting to you, politics is the practice or theory of influencing other people, the definition of the word politics is derived from Greek meaning of or for as related to its citizens. I wonder what it would be like here in the United States if politicians actually acted as if they were bringing the meaning of politics to life. Here right now in America, we have candidates competing to be president of the United States. That role certainly sounds important, and it certainly sounds like a job for a committed, passionate, educated person. Unfortunately, what's actually happening during the presidential race is similar to something out of a hit TV show like Big Brother or Survivor. There's not a thing that I have seen or heard throughout any of the debates that would be associated with the actual meaning of of politics. What we call politics has become nothing more than some crazed reality show where we have to decide who gets voted off the island and then we're left with a survivor as our president. (laughs) Feel like it? Maybe or maybe not. I don't know, but I've lived 55 years and it seems different this time. Maybe not so different, but at least an escalation of different, right? And... uh, it seems more confusing, potentially more frustrating than ever before. So I don't want to talk about what, what creates it. I simply want to address the church. Um, I've been asking God all week, and I'm going to ask right now to, uh, for God to use his word and to shape our hearts and minds around two particular thoughts. One is the kingship of Jesus and that reality, and two is the conduct of its citizens, all right, so we've got Jesus' kingship and we've got our conduct as his citizens, so um, I wanna pray and ask for God's intervention on this sermon, so let's pray together. Father God in heaven, I pray for this um, study together. If there's anything in us, Father, um, that we would be um, good to confess, it would be our inclination to make much of the world we live in, and not so much about you. So I pray that your spirit would be present. I pray that he would speak to us and teach us and confirm in us and uh, give us the hope that comes only through a perspective of the lordship of Christ in our life, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, two two particular sections. The kingship of Jesus. I got four particular points. I'm going to do something really kind of different. I'm going to just... Read a passage and ask you questions and this and this time, I want your participation we don 't do this very often, but i 'm going to ask what I perceive to be very obvious can't-be-wrong kind of questions, so jump in. Just just yell out what you think is the answer. And and by the way, this entire experience is going to really be a kind of a tutorial, another angle at looking at the so, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God is in control. He is, he is in control of everything. And so we're going to get there as, as it pertains to understanding our role in this world, in this society. So let me uh, unpack it this way. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 2. We'll have the text up on the screen Um, if you don't have a Bible. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. Let me give you a little background. Uh, Daniel, uh, an an Israelite man abducted by the Babylonians and drug off to Babylon. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the emperor. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He doesn't know what the dream means. It's just an image. It's uh, like a man image, but it's made of clay and bronze and iron and and precious metals, and something rolls out of the hills and destroys it. And he's confused, and he's frustrated, and he can't sleep. And so he asks for the wise men of the, of the community to interpret the dream, and uh, no one there can. But they heard of this guy named Daniel. Daniel can interpret dreams. And so uh, Daniel shows up. But before he does and shows up before Nebuchadnezzar, he speaks to his comrade, the text tells us, his friends, and he speaks some absolute truths about God and what he does in our world. And I think it applies to our, our discussion this morning. Verse 20, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up, kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now, if you skip over to verse 37, same chapter, Daniel is now in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. And before he starts to unpack this dream, the interpretation of this dream, he says to Nebuchadnezzar some absolute truths about the king, about the emperor that apply to this reality that God sets up kings. This is what he says, verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, listen, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields, and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold in this interpretation. So here, here we go. Let's see how this works. Don't be shy. Questions. I think they're fairly obvious. Who sets up kings, governors, emperors, and presidents? Okay. You can do better, but that's the right answer. Way to go. So let me look at the question another, from another angle. Does anyone ever get a position of leading without God's sovereign control. Okay, you guys are great. So here's the first truth you confess, that God is setting up kings, no questions asked, right? And no one is set up apart from his control. I want you to flip in your Bibles to Revelation chapter one, last book of the Bible. We're gonna pick it up in verse four and five. Here is John. He is talking about the future, and he's uh, writing to these seven churches, and as he writes this truth to the seven churches, making assessments of where they are spiritually, he kind of introduces huge doctrine about who Christ is. And uh, this is what he says, for Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Listen very carefully to verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So ready? Here's another question. Who is the ruler of all kings on earth? Jesus is, right? Right? So, is there any king, any prime minister, any governor, any president that ever was or ever will be um, that Jesus doesn't rule over? No. Okay. So, the second truth you just confessed is that Jesus is the ruler of all rulers. He is, as we say, as the scriptures tell us, the king of kings, right? All right, let's go on. 1 Timothy, go back to the left again, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is a letter from a a pastor named Paul to a young pastor named Timothy who doesn't really feel confident about his role and he's being instructed on how to teach the church and what to guide the church into. And he has been taught here from Paul's hand uh, issues regarding men and women and issues regarding widows and how to care for them and and elders roles and slaves and bond servants and how to to deal with false teachers and not to desire riches of this world and specifically to fight the good fight of faith. Now look at verse 11 of chapter 6 and this is what Paul says. But as for you, O uh, man of God, Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who, is, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of, and you should circle this next word, this personal pronoun, our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at proper time. He, speaking of Jesus, who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. John's writing to the church, and he says something really profound about Jesus for us, okay? So here is the next set of questions. Who is the church's sovereign? Who is our king? Jesus. Jesus is. And no other, right? According to John here in Revelation, so let me just repeat what you confessed, that Jesus is our king. He is the church's king, okay? One last stop, and then we won't move again, I promise. First Peter Chapter 2, this will be uh, where we hang out the rest of the morning. First Peter chapter 2, Peter is teaching the church about our new birth in Christ and about our call to holy living, and the way he starts that discussion is by talking about our identity. Like the church really needs to understand who we are in Christ, and that's what he says here. We're going to pick it up in verses 9 and 10, and then I'll ask you a question. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now listen to verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Question, who do you belong to? Who do we belong to? Okay, now let me just back up and run at this. You've just confessed that that we are the people of the king. We are his possession. This is what you said in totality. God is the one who sets up every king, every, every governor, every president who has ever lived. Jesus is the ruler of all of those kings. Jesus is the church's king, and we belong to him. We are his possession. Isn't that what you said? Isn't that what we confessed together? Isn't that what the text said very clearly? Okay. That confession right there changes everything. Everything you ever thought about politics, about living here in this society, it changes everything. In a world where it is so normal to market in fear, and the church is no exception, we kind of lean into things that scare us. In, in a time maybe... It seems so out of control. Maybe, maybe in our history, there's no more um, time that I've ever seen that's more confusing from leadership versus answers from leadership. It seems that way to me. Our confession has to be so much more than words. It has to be way more than assent. Our confession is our life. It has to put feet on this thing. We have to do things differently and believe things differently. It can't just be a statement. All of life is all for Jesus. It has to change us. Would you agree? I hope you do. In fact, and I think you already know this, every time the scripture ever declares the wonderful truths of our belonging to Jesus and our identity in him, every time it talks about the things of salvation and merit, the things about adoption and love from God towards sinners who don't deserve it, every time it talks about the gospel, it tells the church, therefore. Every time. Because this is true, therefore, you need to think different and act different and believe different and love different and care different than you ever did before if you are his possession, if you're his child, if you're his adopted sons and daughters. That's what it says. Every time. And in this situation, that's exactly what Peter does. After declaring this wonderful truth that we are not our own, we belong to God, we are his possession. After all, our tutorial through all these wonderful truths about him being king and Lord over all and our Lord specifically, there is a huge therefore implied in verse 11 in this text in 1 um, in, in Peter chapter 2. It doesn't say it, but it's, it's, it's there With intent. Look at verses 11 and 12, and I'll tell you where it fits. Based on this truth of now being God's people, that are his possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race, beloved, I urge you, and this is where therefore should come in live as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's therefore. Maybe you missed it, so let me back up and read it from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the same text. I think it's really blunt this way. He says, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudice. Then they'll be won over to God's side and and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. That's Peter's therefore. That's what he's intending here. We've, We've said it. God alone sets up kings. Jesus rules over all those kings. He's our king. We are his possession Therefore, church, we have to live like this isn't it. We have to live differently, that this is not our home. Why? Because it's not. It's not on a banner somewhere. It's a reality. It's a truth that Jesus saved us unto himself. And this isn't our home. And that's more real than what you can put your hands on and what you could vote for. We don't belong here. So, I think... uh, it would be fair to say we all struggle with this perspective from time to time, our citizenship. I get that. And maybe in an election year more than any other time, it shows up more frequently. So let me give you a little self-test to see if it's kind of creeped in. You ready? And you do this on your own. If when you think about your life, or you think about this election or our country or whatever, if your predominant strongest feelings are fear fear, anxiety, worry, or anger, I'm suggesting there's a possibility that you're living like this is your home. And only you would be able to tell that story. If you really get ramped up, if somebody messes with whatever, if it really overtakes you, if you can't control yourself or your mouth, there's a possibility that you've lost perspective. You lost your compass. You don't know where you belong, right? Okay. Maybe you're asking the question. I think you should ask, how? How? Okay. If Peter says, I'm a sojourner in exile, if this is not my home, how do I live then here until someday there? Okay. Here's how simple it's going to be. Peter gives us, I think, eight, particular things um, that help us understand the activity of the citizens of heaven, okay? Here's the first one. He says in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh. How do you go and live like it's real, that you're not a citizen here? You, You abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is what verse 11 says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's a better phrase for passions of the flesh because I know what I thought of when I first read that. Well, that's sexual desires, and it does include that. But a better phrase for that, that um, little sentence is, is self-gratifying living. So if there was a phrase that was better to describe the political climate and the reason why people vote, self-gratified living might be pretty good. It's about me. It does include sexual desires and self-seeking and wealth and power and pleasure. It's certainly there. And and Peter says, and by the way, it's a lifelong fight. He talks about these things that wage war. Well, the word wage war is this military term described of an ongoing, never-ending conflict. If you're 70 years old, you're supposed to say amen right there. Because you know, you've lived it. These desires don't just go away at conversion. You get up every day and fight the good fight to keep your perspective that this is not my home. I don't find gratification, self-hope here. I'm always pushing against that. Even when I make mistakes, I call it what it is and I leave it, right? Don't we do that? So church, kind of get ready for this. It's a lifelong war. Here's the second thing he says of how to live like this is not your home. Attractive conduct, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The the word see um, is really helpful to understand it in its broadest terms. It means long-term reflective observation. They... Those who are not of the kingdom of God, those who don't understand your savior or your convictions, they're watching over the length of your life to see if there's anything there. And here's what Peter suggests they should find, honorable things, which another way to say honorable things is beautiful and attractive things. They need to look at our life and go, wow, why do you do what you do? And why do you care about the things you care about? And why do you love the people not like you? And why do you give of yourself? And why do you care about this world? And why do you take a small position? Why do you walk humbly? They need to look at that because it doesn't happen anywhere else. And say, that's attractive. That's winsome. Peter just simply says, just keep at it. It's a lifelong fight. Just keep at it. The beauty of love and service is attractive. And over time, they'll see it and they will give glory to the king. Okay. Here's another thing that Peter adds to the discussion of how to live when this isn't our home. It's verses 13 through 15 and it's something we don't like to hear, submission to our government. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil. And to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should, not, you, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The word su- submit here is also another military word. It just simply means to put yourself under another in rank. I'm going to line up under. And by the way, this is not this version of lining up under. It, it, it is not a Grin and Barrett version. When Peter talks about lining up under and submission, he's talking about a joyful alignment. A joyful alignment, which is different than how we would typically see this. It means obedience to the laws. It means respect and good deeds because after all, Peter says here, God has given them to us to do a job to praise the good doers and punish the evil doers. They have a role to fill in God's economy and he says, joyfully align under that authority. As believers, we are to be, i.e., good citizens. I don't know if you were here a couple of weeks ago when Tyler was kind of finishing up our Judges series. And he quoted from Patrick Miller who talked about the Ten Commandments from this perspective. That the Ten Commandments in their essence portray the ethos or the culture of the good neighborhood. You remember this? That when the church lives out the reality of what God has called us to do, we are a blessing to our world. We're a blessing to our neighbors and to our, and to our culture. And so the Ten Commandments simply are a way to describe that living All right. So here is a paraphrase of what Peter has just said regarding this being in subject to the human institutions. The church, with its eyes clearly fixed on Jesus as its king, lives as good citizens by joyfully aligning in obedience and respect and honor and good deeds. That's what Peter says. That's how we live. That's how we live as citizens who don't belong here. So, how does that look? We obey laws. Nothing too grand, I suppose. We buy houses, we build houses. We pray for the welfare of our city. We get involved in our schools and we we are good employers, we're good employees. We raise good kids, and we have a good family, and we care for others and And that simple, just living out life with Jesus as king is a winsome activity for the kingdom citizens. That's what Peter says. Let me add to this. How do we live like this? this is in our home? Verse 16, use our freedoms to serve God and others. Live as the people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Do you know who is the emperor when Peter is writing this idea of submission and service? Nero. I suppose if we picked a caricature of a leader that would be the hardest to follow, maybe Nero would be on the top five. I don't know. Nero, for his kicks and giggles, would dip um, Christians in wax and light his gardens with their bodies. So my assumption when Peter says, All right, I'm calling up your submission to the emperor, that the church kind of went, whoa, wait a minute. That seems a little bit far and so he also understands the inclination of the flesh. And here's what the flesh, apart from the spirit, would do to something like a Nero or another person or president you don't like and you think fails you. Well, he doesn't deserve my respect. He doesn't earn my submission. He has let me down. Right? And Peter's simply a, kind of appealing to Christ in you, the spirit in you, to say, listen, you're free from following the fleshly inclinations. You're set free to obey God. You're free to love because your attachments aren't here. Your offenses aren't personal. So you're free from that inclination to sin and rebel. You're now free to serve and obey. That's what Peter says. Let me give you a fifth thing, how to live as strangers here. Verse 17, honor everyone. Now, I'm gonna kind of retranslate that, I think more specifically and more poignantly. Um, It's honor people different than you. Uh, Clearly, Peter says everyone, and I I think it includes everyone, but but I'm just going to state a reality. How many of you have a hard time honoring people who are just like you? Vote like you, think like you, dream like you, mow the grass like you, care for their kids like you? It's pretty easy when they're just like you. I'll give them respect. They think like I do. But when they're not like you, when they don't dress like you and they don't see the same issues from the same side of the street as you do, when they don't understand what you understand or care what you care or grew up where you didn't grow up, these people that are strangers to us, Peter says, honor everybody. And the hardest person to honor is the people I'm not certain about. And our world offers a bunch of those, don't they? So honor the people different than you. The stranger. So, let me add another one. How do we live as though we don't belong here? Peter says in verse 17, love the brotherhood. At first glance, this seems a little bit out of place, to be honest. Like we were in a rhythm here, you know, and love seems weird. I think Peter has really just one thought in mind here. If we are really to live as sojourners and exiles, uh, like this really isn't our home, and we are supposed to be a winsome, attractive, beautiful, beautiful depiction of the kingdom and kingdom citizen living, if that's supposed to happen, what do you think happens to that influence when we don't love each other? You know what happens. All the accusations against the church, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And they look at us and go, why would, I, why would I come there? Why would I do that? Why would I believe that? You act and live just like I do. You hate each other. I'm not suggesting that magically, that when the kingdom dawns in your heart, there aren't any tensions with people. But the gospel gives us an answer on how to deal with tensions. We see ourselves as sinners. We confess our sins. We are restored to each other with repentance and forgiveness, right? That's the answer. We keep short accounts with each other, and we love each other. We care for each other, and that is, by the way, winsome. Love the brothers. Love each other. So isn't that sort of, um, isn't that supposed to be the visible testimony that the world can see, and they will know that we are Christians by our love? They'll see it. All right. There's two more phrases, but one more thought in the end of verse 17. And I think it's better dealt with backwards, but let me just read what he says here after Love the Brothers. He says, fear God, honor the emperor. I think it makes more sense to read it backwards, as if Peter said this, honor the emperor, but fear God. Make sense? That's what he means here. In other words, Peter's trying to draw a line between God and the king. And it really boils down to one particular truth and thought obey God rather than men. Make sense? So, if we are ever forbidden to do what God commands or commanded to do what God forbids, who do we obey? That was pretty easy. Who do we obey? There you go. That's all Peter says here. Live with your mindset on the kingdom. Here, blessing the world. Don't ever get confused about what you're supposed to do. Love and honor, respect, submit, and bless. But if they ever tell you to go against your God, that's it. That's the line. Make sense? Okay. We have seen and talked about and confessed the kinship of Jesus that God is the one who sets up kings, that Jesus is the ruler of all rulers. He's the king of kings. He is the church's king, and we are his possession. We've confessed that out loud. We've gone through this discussion of the conduct of the citizens of the kingdom. We do things like love and abstain from passions and submit to our government, and we live attractive lifestyles, and we care for people different than us. Not a list that we just portrayed, but I was praying like crazy to be maybe more observant of us today. So I kind of asked um, God to kind of clarify some thoughts of things I see. Now, I'm not saying they're universal, and I'm not suggesting that they're equal to maybe some particular passage. I think there's truths in them that ring in Scripture. But I thought I would just say it, because we're all a family. And uh, my observations of the church are, are Pretty broad in how we respond to elections or votes or politics or whatever. So let me try to be practical. And this is for your consideration. And I love the part of of what the Spirit does. The Spirit's going to preach this. He's going to preach it now. He's going to preach it when you leave. So write these down if you want to consider it later. But I I want you to consider this don't be selfish. Now, that's a biblical principle, right? Don't be selfish. If I could take the time, and I don't have the time, but if I could take the time and said, let's do this. Let's do an exercise on Jesus. And everyone just throw in a word. Tell me about your Savior. And we would get all over it, right? We'd talk about his love and his mercy. We would talk about his power and his strength. But eventually someone would say, he's a servant. He's a servant. That's what he is. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 20. That the Son of Man did not come to be served, but, right, to, to give his life, a ransom for many. Isn't that the truth of the scriptures? So, um, to be a kingdom citizen in its essence means I try to live like the king. I try to replicate the behavior and the demeanor and the passions and the loves and the affections of of the king. So here's what I'm saying specifically about this. Don't just look at your vote as something that's good for you. This is where it gets a little bit confrontational. If all you see for the vote that God has given you in our culture and society is, you look at the issues and you go, this will make me happy, that'll make me happy, this will make me more money, this'll do this, this'll do this, and you never consider anybody else, ever. You don't ever consider anything but how it benefits you. I'm, I'm just asking you to look yourself in the spiritual mirror and ask if that's what God wants you to do. I'm not judging it, I'm not a, I don't even wanna know what you're thinking about. But I think when we replicate the king, In the citizens of the king, if he was a servant who gave his life for many, then something should show up even in something like an election. Agreed? Okay, I knew that would be hard. Anyway, let's go on. Don't be afraid. Again, when Paul was writing to young Timothy that scared pastor, he says to Timothy right out of the gate, um, Tim, God didn't give us the spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power and strength. So if what you're feeling right now in this election is fear, then you've got to tell yourself the truth. It's not God because God doesn't mark it in fear. It's not what he does. You're, there's something else dictating those terms. Besides, you already confessed it, didn't you? No one can become president unless God allows it. Didn't you say that? Does that bring peace to your soul that he's in control? Does that settle the fears? I I think it should. God doesn't do fear. Don't be afraid. Be informed, steward your vote, and trust in King Jesus. Here's the third thing. Look for idols. More than likely, um, something in this election, um, something you love in this election is going to be in jeopardy. Happens all the time. I really care about this. I really value that. We should do this. Or That's a danger there. I get it. And I, I understand that. I simply want you to do the exercise of asking yourself when that thing you love is in jeopardy, ask yourself if it's grown too big and has it risen to the level of the throne in your life. Again, I wouldn't know and I'm not making any judgments. I'm just saying you would know. And if this thing, this thing that really matters to you is moving your emotions and moving your convictions and moving all this stuff to such a degree that you don't look like a kingdom citizen, then here's what you do. It's like every other sin, which is another way of saying an idol is just say, mm-hmm. God, it's, it's wrong, and I confess it, and I leave it behind. Okay, so look for idols. Here's a, here's a fourth thing, and this doesn't apply to everybody, but to some of you. I want you to repent of apathy. Some of you have removed yourself completely from the whole thing. I don't like anybody that's running for office. I don't trust anybody. I've buried my head in the sand. I'm not voting. I'm just not going to do that. Well, let me challenge that. Part, part of being a good citizen is to participate as an influencing member of its society. And in, in God's sovereignty, here's what we have in America. We live in a country that still elects its presidents based on votes. So here's how I see this. Here's how I think you should see this. God, in his wisdom, for now, has given each one of you, every one of you, a vote. I believe to be God-fearing means that you will steward that vote. That's what I think it means, Okay not because your hope is wrapped up in the vote or how it turns out, not because you really believe the next guy that says change and you go, ah, okay, I want change, not because you do that. Here's why, it's very simple. Your vote represents the small way you can honor God by influencing the good neighborhood. That's what it is. It's what you can do. Some of you can do more, but at a minimum, we vote to influence the good neighborhood. I'm choosing these things because it blesses people. It encourages faith. It does those things. So I'm kind of stewarding my vote for the sake of others. That's, that's the reality. So if you're disengaged, I understand. If you're disengaged because you don't trust anything and you don't believe anything anymore, I understand. That's not what God's called you to do. We trust in him. We steward what he's given us, and we still trust in him. Let me give you a couple more. I want you to be careful of ingoing and outgoing content. Here's what I mean by that. I do think we should be informed. I think we should be educated in what's out there and what we're voting on and who we're voting for. But some of us are on a steady diet of fear news. In fact, I don't know any other kind of news, to be honest with you. The reason why these stations, left, right, middle, whatever, take their positions is because they have a contingency of people who love to hear what they're supposed to be afraid of. Constantly. And I'm not telling you what to watch or what to listen to. I'm telling you to be careful. If what you do by entertaining information does nothing but ramp up fear, which is opposite of faith that God does not do, then have the guts to turn it off or look at it less or something. I don't know if I trust any of it, but bottom line is if all you do is get ramped up over what you watch and listen and it doesn't build your faith, it's like any other subject matter. Guard your heart. Let me give you another angle, okay? So I said, incoming, let me talk about outgoing content. I I don't know. I can't say this. People tell me the internet's good, okay? That it's blessed a lot of people. That was supposed to be funny. You're supposed to laugh right there. Um, And I'm certain it does, and I'm certain social media has done all these wonderful things. I'm certain it does, but you know what else it does? It gives a place for people to do things autonomously and look like fools, And what I'm saying is if you have a blog or a Facebook or this and you're emoting all your fears and angers about what's going on. If that's what you're doing, I'm going to ask you to reconsider and try to influence your peace in the king versus your fear of an outcome. I want you just to, I trust in Christ. God is in control. I'm going to think. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do this. Don't feed someone else's fear. Be the peace of Christ in this situation. You see what I'm saying? Number six, joy has to be, has to be the demeanor of the church. Remember when James is instructing the church, he talks about trials, difficulty. He says, consider it ultimate joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. This is what pa- Tom talks about last week. If I'm supposed to consider joy in trials, and you can't write the Christian narrative according to Paul without Galatians 5 that says joy is a part of the fruit of the Spirit, that I'm telling you, church, our predominant expression should be joy. You're a sinner that deserves to waste away in hell forever, and God sent his son on a rescue mission to pull you out and give you life and a purpose. What are we doing? we should have joy agreed and and then one last thought and we're out of here I'm sorry i've taken too much time i understand that some of the church feel like this whole election cycle is just another example of the church under attack and and maybe it is i don't i don't know i don't even want to i don't want to say that maybe it is maybe the church is under attack according to the scriptures it says that stuff like that's going to happen but let me push back on If that's a driving factor in your thoughts, I want you to know this, and this is an absolute truth. Nothing stops the church, nothing thwarts the work of the church, spirit in the church, but disobedience. Jesus, I'm building my church. Hell can't stand against it. The only time the church gets sideways is when it won't obey God has nothing to do with where you live or who you vote for or who gets elected. Nothing stops the church. This kind of winsome, beautiful character, conduct to the world is what we've been called to do. And so if you're freaked out that the church is going to get suffered for that, but whatever. Whatever. Jesus on the throne. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that we have answers to moments like this in our culture where there is fear and there's confusion, we trust that you've sorted everything out in your throne room. So I pray for us, God, that we could live um, like this is not our home. As we live in, as good citizens in this world, being obedient and serving and loving and caring and working Uh, to bring about your image in this world. I pray, God, that we would keep our perspective, keep our hope and keep our joy anchored in the King of glory, Jesus our Savior. And we pray that in his name, amen.